Hello and welcome back to the Miscast, where we examine the latest news, spicy brews, and strategy in CDH. I'm your host, Drake Sasser, and with me, as always, is my co-host and good friend, Mikey Hollihan. How's it going, buddy? Swell. Very tired. I've had a very busy past couple of weeks. Um, as many of you who know me know, I've been hosting my friend Emil from Germany, and uh, he's been here for about two about a week and a half now, and then after he leaves, I'm going to be hosting one of my friends from the Netherlands, good old the Goose himself, Gustav. Uh, so it's just been a very, very busy month. Um, been trying to keep him occupied. We've been going to a bunch of different cities. So this past weekend, we were in New York, and we're headed off to D.C. on Friday. So busy buzzing all around, trying to show him as much of America as I can, at least on the East Coast. That's within my reach and is easily accessible. But it's been great having him around. He's had a good time. And yeah, so... Looking forward to August, where things will calm down a little bit, and I can just kind of chill until Punt City. <laughs> that's a that's an entire mood. My July's been busy as well. Did you take Emil to uh, the beer garden? Took me to when I was up there. It was like really good. I want to know the the legitimacy here. Is it like you know fairly authentic, or is it Americanized as hell? I didn't take him there. It's something that I offer, but he hates beer. Oh. And also, since I moved, I'm a little bit further from that place, so I was like, okay, maybe the, maybe don't take him to a beer garden. He's more into, like, cocktails, so I've been taking him to, like, a tiki bar I really like, and places that do more of, like, that kind of stuff, um, since he's not really into beer or cider, so just trying oh, to cater to yeah, that. But yeah, I did really want to take him there and see it. Yeah, I did really want to hear his thoughts on that, but I was like, oh, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense to me. I, I don't know. It's just I love that kind of stuff, and, you know, it's, it's a fairly unique experience, and I, I didn't know how it lined up with actually living in germany it would maybe maybe sway my uh visit germany priority a little bit you know plus or that, negative based on that review that's fair i definitely love that place it's a place i like <laughs> to go to um maybe when the goose is here i'll take him there and see if he has any thoughts yeah for sure i i don't know the goose's familiarity nor his preferences towards or against beers and ciders and stuff but uh you know obviously that's very much my thing so you know you know just we, Good, it was the perfect Drake Sasser, uh, Drake Sasser excursion, for sure. <laughs> exactly. German food and beer. <laughs> I love to see it. Love to see it so much. Well, I also have been fairly busy. Just got back from Command Fest Indianapolis, and I uh, have some friends coming to stay this weekend. My, uh, my partner and I, we share uh, the same birthday month. That's this month in July. And uh, her birthday is... Uh, on the 14th mine's like a week and a day later the 22nd so we uh this year are just kind of doing a combination thing we both took like whatever four days off we're having a bunch of people come into town we're you know going tubing we're gonna have a lake day we're gonna have a cookout we're doing all kinds of stuff we're gonna hang out in atlanta one day and just like eat some food and chill out so we got all kinds of stuff coming up this weekend um, but so not a lot of magic for me going on this weekend, but it was super cool to play my first command fest, uh, in Indianapolis last weekend. That's something that I kind of had on my bucket list since pre COVID times, uh, when I was just like a filthy you know, grinder, just playing all the tournaments and stuff. I was like, I don't know. Command fest seems like a nice, unique, relaxed experience that might, you know, kind of show me why, uh, why I like magic so much. Uh, do you have any thoughts on Command Fest? Do you like them, hate them? What are your thoughts? The idea is cool. I, I like the intention behind Command Fest, but for me personally, I am not a big fan of them. I've been to several of them at this point in various different states, various different quality of venues. But for me, what it really comes down to is that you're going to these things, and I think a lot of people who are active on Twitter have seen very similar complaints, is you go there and it feels like a big LGS. 
which is fine, but I don't want to pay $100 to sit at my LGS and play pickup games with people that I could just play with at my apartment or something else. Like, I feel like the side events are kind of lacking. The price support isn't really there. At Command Fest Philly, for instance, the one I went to fairly recently, it had four artists. And I only knew that there was two there because two of them were so tucked away in a corner that I didn't even know they existed. Oh, wow. I probably wouldn't have even known that the other two artists existed if I wasn't going there to get cards signed for Brian because Brian wanted me to get the arcane or the remand signed. Um, but yeah, like, I just feel like your the price tag is too high for what you get. I don't think the side events have enough support. I think like the on demand commander pods at fire. Like if you really want to grind them out, it's super easy because half the time people aren't like, playing optimized CEDH, so it's an easy way to get tickets. But it's like cool, you get tickets, and now the price support sucks anyway. So. I don't know. Not the biggest fan, uh, but I'm hoping that like Eminence is able to start to shift that a little bit because the way that our model is, you pay for the main CEDH event if you want to compete, but if not, it's free to just to show up, do pickup games, and then if you want, there's side events available that obviously you have to pay for, but in general, we're getting a bunch of people together in a space, and if you don't want to compete, that's fine. Just show up, bring your deck, find a table, sit down. I think that's a better model that I would hope Command Fest can start to adopt over time, like have like one big central event that people flock to, and then make it so that if you want to, you can just come chill, hang out for free. And then there's side events available and things like that. Because, like, I don't want to pay for side events when my ticket's already $100, personally. Like, that's just very meh, in my opinion. But Yeah, I did. I kind of echo some of that sentiment. It's actually funny. I was actually having this conversation today with a different friend of mine where uh, it is interesting that the Magic world has always had the, like, uh, you pay for the tournament. Think of like Grand Prix and stuff, right? Where you would pay for the tournament and then if you just wanted to show up and hang out, you could just enter the venue willy-nilly and whatever, go hang out in the command zone, go do whatever. It didn't cost you a dime to be in the building. But if you wanted to play the tournament, it would cost money. And to him, someone who, you know, was I did a little bit of grinding, is but is definitely not really involved in any of the Commander world or Command Fest or anything like that. He always thought it was like fairly weird that, magic tournaments don't make you pay just to enter the door because that's what most conventions do right like you know you pay for a ticket to enter the door and then you usually end up spending more money on whatever little side things and stuff you want to do so it does follow like there is precedence for this kind of model but it definitely feels like it's more expensive than um other things like for instance there was a, a scheduled event i wanted to play that was like sealed mystery booster convention center i love that set in that format mm-hmm. uh but it was like 80 dollars, and the point at which i'd already spent like whatever 150 dollars on a ticket and i i love getting cards signed so i went and got a bunch of my stuff signed spent a bunch of money at the artist booth which is much you know where i'd much rather spend my money anyways give money back to the magic artists uh i was just kind of like eh like i don't know if i want to turn this into you know that expensive of a weekend um so I, I kind of echo some of those sentiments as well. I think I would have enjoyed it a lot less if it wasn't uh, an opportunity for me to kind of meet up with the playing with power guys. Because I, I haven't really met, you know, all of them in person. And even to this date, I guess I haven't met all of them in person. But it was nice to be able to, like, show up, hang out. And it was, like, kind of what I always wanted Magic tournaments to be, where you just, like, show up and hang out with friends that live very far away. And you just kind of chill, vibe, play games with people you don't normally get to play games with and move along with things. I think if I didn't know that like a bunch of my friends were going to be there, I wouldn't have had a good time. And that to me, I think, I, I don't know if that's problematic or not, but it is, I think a legitimate review. Like it's something that I wouldn't ever go to on my own, but I would show up knowing that, you know, whatever you're going to be there or the playing power guys are going to be there or somebody that like, I know I can just like hang out with, even if I can't get pods constantly firing with people, 
or you know whatever i want to go look for a pod it feels a lot better to look for a pod with a friend so like i i think it's much more an experience that i would look forward to to do with other friends and maybe you could you know replicate that somewhere else doing something else but the con feeling is there like the artist being there was nice the huge crowd like was kind of cool you can buy some cards if you need i bought some sleeves and you know, you can go buy some singles if you want, get some pictures taken. Like, there's stuff to do. I think I would like to see more, like, things to do to, like, anchor you down and give me a reason to go, you know, on our own. I had a friend, Will Kruger, that, you know, not to, not to belabor this tangent, but I had a friend, Will Kruger, that posted, uh, he, and I, he was reached out to me. He was like, hey, is there, like, any kind of 60-card tournament stuff going on at all? Because he's not really a commander guy at all. But he's like, is there anything I can play? Like, even, like, a whatever like a pioneer 5k could show up and just play and then hang out all weekend or whatever like i would definitely be down for that and i was like no i think it's actually just commander and drafts or whatever and he's like dang that seems like an oversight and he kind of made like a fairly tame post on twitter about it and just got absolutely lit lit up by the the commander community and was just blown away by kind of the visceral negative reaction to the idea that there be a single like 60 card constructed event at all at a command fest which i thought was striking to me and also just like i don't know kind of kind of ugly i don't know i didn't love it i i think i think i echo some of his sentiments that it would be cool to have some of my other 60 card friends show up and at least kind of dip their toes into commander while they're there right like it's easy once they're already at command fest to be like hey grab the cdh deck and play with me than it is to be like hey come pay 50 dollars for one day of commander that you may or may not hate like you just can't you just can't sell that yeah. very well I agree. It's, like I said, I feel like there needs to be like a focus where it's like there's a big EDH event or CDH event going on, even if it's only like 40 people. Like I don't care. It could be a low cap. Like have something that pulls people there, but then like treat it like an SCG Grand Prix where there's a lot of other stuff to do, a lot of other stuff to go on. Because all both days I was there, like I showed up pretty late and I left early both of those days. Like it wasn't there was nothing there holding me to the venue that I couldn't just do elsewhere. Because it was like we all met up, you got to say hi to people, you got to meet some new people, and then I was like, okay, cool, let's go to a restaurant and then let's meet up at someone's house and let's just play there with the people that we would be playing with at this venue anyway but now it's more comfortable and we could be more goofy and loud in you know someone's apartment um yeah we'll see like i said eminence is really trying to work on a lot of the stuff we've been seeing a lot of the feedback that people have been giving and that's part of the reason why we're doing like the popper event on day two so it's like if you scrub out the cdh event or something then you can throw a popper to deck or borrow a popper deck because you know people who play popper tend to have like five or six decks because they're so cheap sure and that's something that we're trying to do to help bridge that gap where it's like can pay for something but in general we're just getting everyone there together and then there's a lot of options once you're there and you don't have to you can spend no money or you can spend a lot of money if you want to buy a bunch of new cards if you want to do a bunch of side events if you want to do the popper side event and things like that just giving that flexibility versus you know here's a hundred dollar ticket and it's like okay well figure it out <laughs> yeah i think that's the that's kind of the secret right it's like you need to turn the knobs and find out what formats do commander players play other than commander right like is it popper is it legacy is it modern like what do people play and I think that's going to be the big the big breakthrough for Commander events is finding kind of the best synergy between formats. So I, I'm excited for Fun City. I'm excited to kind of juxtapose uh, a Command Fest experience to my very first CDH tournament on a big scale. So I, I'm definitely excited to kind of have those conversations with you as well. Lots to look forward to. Well, sure. with that out of the way, before we really dive into the meat of today's uh topic what you're working on you're working on any cdh decks I, i'm actually kind of been in the lab i'm working on quite a few things curious what uh what you've been looking at yeah, i feel like you've been much more in the lab than me i'm taking a little bit of a hiatus from 
CDH like playing at least just been so busy. I don't want to like because most most of the time when I'm playing CDH it's through webcam and with having all these guests over doing a lot of traveling like I'm really just trying to not be glued to my laptop or my phone because I'm on my phone so much as it is just with all the people I stay in contact with all the eminent stuff. So I don't want to sit down and be like, oh hey Emil, you're here. Uh, I'm gonna play Commander for three hours. Uh, have fun. So I've been trying just to like. Dis- disassociate myself a little bit, and then August, I'm sure it'll pick back up. So yeah, right now I'm not really working on anything. I've made some edits to Armix Chrome with like feedback from you, Mitch, Alex, Brian, Eric, like that whole group. Um, but I haven't really gotten a chance to test any of those changes out. So right now I'm just kind of taking a break, doing a lot more sealed and that kind of stuff. Like I've been messing around with Jumpstart a lot. I think that product is fucking amazing. It really? is so fun. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun messing around with it. There's a lot of cool synergies. Like obviously it's be luck based because if you just get two things that don't drive together or there's definitely certain archetypes that are stronger but now that we've gone through most of a box like we kind of have a feeling which ones work well together and then we kind of treat it like um i have a better term like a rochester draft where it's like here's what's available like you pick first and it's like okay do i pick the thing that counters that or do i try to get another synergy and things like that so now that we have like more knowledge of it because we keep the jumpstart pack separated and like by their archetype and everything that's also been making it much more interesting and made games like pretty cool because they are it's just a very well designed balanced product in my opinion and it's fun and now that we know a little bit more the nitty-gritty of the different archetypes it's cool in like a draft setting where it's like okay you pick one you pick one you pick and then like snake around um like for instance like the teferi one is one that we think is really powerful Mm -hmm. if you pick that early and then you don't get right synergies with it like with the other deck then you're kind of screwed so it's a lot of it's it's very interesting and you know it's created this whole little meta game that we've been diving into a little bit that's awesome. I've never, yeah, I've never done anything with that product. I'm actually, I'm kind of a sucker. You wouldn't, you wouldn't call me for it. But I'm kind of a sucker for some of the like sweet, uh, like draft formats, like things like conspiracy are like a hundred percent my shit. And like, I loved like eternal masters, modern, the very original modern masters. Some of these are some of my favorite draft formats of all time, like modern horizons, like normal, like standard set drafts. are like, don't really do it for me, but when you up the power level a little bit, it really, it really does a lot for me. So I like a lot of the, like uh, the masters sets, like the current double masters I've heard is an awesome draft format. I just had yeah, it seems insane. Yeah. It looks really, really fun. Um, I've thought about firing up some of that, but like, like you, I'm extremely busy and have been spending time in other places, but, uh, I'm actually kind of jealous. It sounds really sweet. And, uh, maybe I'll have to check that out at some point in time, see if we can find, find a way to get that, uh, drafted. Yeah. And the boxes are cheap. They're 90 bucks and it's an easy way to teach someone because it's literally just take two packs, shuffle them together, done. Right. Um, yeah. And like I said, then it gets like to the next level when you actually have them all and separate out and you have people picking and choosing and figure out like which ones actually work the best together. So it's definitely nothing like too like you know head scratchy, but it is just it's easy to do and pick up. Everything's pretty balanced, and there is levels to it once like you start diving into it more. So it's been something I just had a lot of fun with, and you know it's more casual for lack of a better word than what I'm used to doing with CEDH. So it's just been a nice little breath of fresh air, just fun, you know, messing around. Like sometimes you you get screwed and your packs aren't great, but there's a lot you can do with the product once you dive more into it, which I think is interesting. Yeah, that's super awesome. Well, for me, I have been spending a bunch of time on CDH. I am still very much in the meat of the tournament prep process. Of course, this is going to more or less be a week off for me since it's the whole birthday week thing. But um, even up to and including Command Fest Indie, I was doing, I mean, very real testing for tournaments, even on site. Like, you know, obviously I'm playing games with, you know, people that I know, friends, playing with power people. But when you are in that kind of environment where you have that much of a concentration of cdh players that all kind of are playing different things and stuff like that it's very much a ripe environment for testing 
And so, you know, even if not everybody knew it, I was trying to garner as much playtesting information as I could out of the games I played in indie. And uh, so, I mean, whatever, if you were there, it's pretty obvious what I was working on. I've been working on Blue Farm for quite a while. I spent a little bit of time in the past week or two actually kind of rethinking Najila. I think there's a lot of accepted um, restrictions. And uh, maybe we'll do an episode about this in the future. I think a lot of times people try to be too smart with their decks. And like, for instance, I think not including Underworld Breach in the average Najila deck is kind of a mistake. And that's something that I've been toying around with and playing with. I kind of figured out that Najila is not as much of my play style, even though I do think the archetype's fairly powerful. Um, and I do like a lot of the A plus B combos out of the command zone. But I don't think you need to go that hard on that kind of thing. Like, it's okay to just be like a Thorical Breach deck that also just has combos out of the command zone and has like a very real beatdown plan out of the command zone as well because Najila is such a powerful card. So, spent a little bit of time in Najila, uh, put together a list that I was, like, moderately happy with, but it's not really tuned at all. I think it could definitely use some work. But, I, I mean, it's one of those that, like, it's close enough, and if I was going to pick up Najila again, I'd definitely start there. But uh, I, I do like Blue Farm as a front runner. Um, spent a little bit of time playing Bergy, toying around with it because it's fun, but for the most part, not really considering that for Punt City. It's definitely, definitely one of those where, uh, looking at Blue Farm for sure as a front runner. Could potentially still audible to something like Chrome Armix or even something like Roger Silas. I have obviously Bryant's really big on the deck and is trying to sell me on it. But I think for the time being, I don't, I'm not as convinced that that is worth the going down to color and um, reducing the power level of your commanders in the command zone by a little bit. So I, I really like where my Blue Farm deck's at. I don't see that much more tuning I'm going to be able to do before Punt City. Um, so it's very much just a lot of figuring out how games play out on different pod compositions and stuff for me now, which I think is a great segue into kind of what motivated the topic for this week is, you know, now that I kind of have a list I'm more or less happy with, you know, cards feel like they all belong, they're cohesive more or less, and, you know, there's a deck list here that I'm happy with, I think the aspect of play that needs the most work for me now is role assessment and role assignment. And that is something that is shocking to me. And I think it's something that I turned a blind eye to for a lot of my early days in CDH because it's something that I was actually pretty good at in the 60-card formats. But it's as I played more and more games, especially with you, I realized, uh, I'm, among other things, you know, there's a lot of things I've learned in the past two years. Um, I've kind of realized that Role assessment is a lot harder and a lot more dynamic in CDH than it is in 60 card formats. To kind of give you a perspective, I want to start off by referencing, you know, an all-timer, truly one of the uh, originators of like magic theory and um, articles. Is an article called Who's the Beatdown, originally written on a platform called The Dojo. I was not around for, for this, but it's referenced in the Star City um star city article and I, I can link this article in the show notes obviously for those of you that have not seen it but this is i mean this is kind of truly one of the building blocks of 60 card uh magic competitive thinking and it involves you know figuring out the, the whole article kind of references like in a mirror match you know both players trying to accomplish the same plan is a, a big mistake you know, there's there's a role. You have somebody that's playing the role of the beatdown, hence the name, who's the beatdown, the aggressor trying to get you dead. 
And then the other deck, you know, takes more of a control role. And that's true for even like the mono red mirror. And this is something that still plays out even, I mean, as recently as when I was grinding magic in the 2019 to 2020 era, like you would play a mono red mirror and oftentimes the player on the draw had to take a control role. So instead of going face with the burn spells, they go at the creatures, which, you know, a lot of times can be seen as wrong. You're giving up damage, et cetera, et cetera. But like your role is different. You're up a card, you're down on tempo, you need to catch up. So there's a whole bunch of factors that play into, all right, well, you are playing the control role trying to answer all the threats and then flip the script with your own threats later in the game that completely changes how you play the game. And Mono Red is used as the prime example because I think it's the most striking there. Like, the difference in play style between just get them dead, go everything face, and suddenly you're a Mono Red control deck, that is just such a very, like, prominent difference in play style. It's one of the easiest ones to reference. But a lot of times this role applies for the majority of the game like the majority of the game you're kind of thinking all right i'm you know in this control position i'm ahead on card advantage i need to answer these threats catch up on time keep my life total high and then eventually you know you, you turn the corner and start trying to win the game but for the most part like for the meat of the actual gameplay and decision making you assume yourself to be in that role whereas i found cdh to be you know very much more dynamic your role changes so often and that was really strange to me because why would that be the case like you know if you take a role like this in 60 card formats it should just be making the correct assessment as to what kind of role you need to be in at the start and then carrying it on just like in 60 card but that's just not the case you agree with that sentiment i actually don't know a lot of your thoughts on role assessment like diving into it so there's going to be a lot of me making a claim as to what i think is true and asking you and if you tell me i'm completely wrong then i'm happy to discuss it yeah i definitely agree i don't have as much experience with cc card formats as you but one thing with cdh that really dictates on how your role changes is for one uh seat order is a huge factor and in addition to that while your deck might be really fast, it might not be the fastest deck at the table. So, like, for instance, you, you've been seeing this a lot with Blue Farm. Like, Blue Farm is one of the faster decks in the format. However, it is not the fastest by any means. And you start to see, like, oh, I'm able to be the aggressor in a lot of pods because, you know, I'm able to just jam out my Nas really consistently and things like that. However, when Bryant is on Roger Silas or now Mitch has started to pick it up, they are going to get to that Nas faster than you every single time if you try to race them. And it's not that your deck is slow by any means. This is your role has changed in that table. When you see Roger Silas or a deck like Anala or, you know, insert other very proactive strategy here, you need to assess that and realize, okay, I'm used to being the aggressor, but now I need to be ready to stop this turn to win or whatever it might be. And that's a sign that's really hard to realize. And another good example of this, I feel like, is when we talk about Winota. Like, for instance, I don't think Winota is a bad deck by any means, and you know, from our conversations. I think it's comfortably like a tier two deck. But you, Brian, and a few of the other people that we've been playing with regularly like to put it in Tier 1. And not to say that it's not, like I said, a very powerful deck. I think it's because you all just aren't used to playing against it as much as me. Because I've kept some hands and taken pictures of them and shown you you guys after, and you're like, why did you keep that hand? I was like, well, this plays around Rule of Law really well. Like, it doesn't win Turn 2, Turn 3, but I have a very solid plan to win Turn 4, Turn 5, and I have answers to Winota over and over again, because it kept, like, a Dress Down, Bounce Spell, Tutor, and a Console. So I knew that there's going to be stacks pieces. I can be able to play around Thalia if I keep making land drops and keep making mana and things like that. That was on the play where I kept like one of these kind of weirder, wonky hands. And 
Alex was like, why would you keep that? And I was like, well, I won the game, and here's why, because I had a plan from turn one by Mulligan that let me play around Winota even if they stacks out the board pretty effectively. It's like that type of forward thinking you really need to pay attention to because mulligans just have such a bigger impact in CDH than 60 card formats, in my opinion. Because you need to not only... Because I think this is the thing that you struggled with a lot. You were keeping hands that were objectively good cards. It had a plan, it was good, but it wasn't fit for what the table was doing or the decks at the table, which takes knowledge where you need to know what everyone's commander is capable of, like what kind of play patterns are they used to, and things like that. And when you start to consider your seed order and all the decks at the table... Hands of just um, objectively good cards might not cut it and may not be good enough. Like, if you see two stacks decks at the table, keeping a turn one risk study doesn't really get you too much leeway. As once they drop a turn one rule law, you, you get lose a lot of viability from those cards. But then there's a lot of other stuff that does better. Like, for instance, when I see stacks decks, I'm automatically going to prioritize Oracle lines over Breach because it's a lot easier to do that through various stacks. And that's the type of thing that you really need to take into consideration when you're viewing the position you are in the pod, what kind of role you need to take. And it just changes so much because the way I play the stacks matchup when I'm in seat one versus seat four is just widely different. And the hands I keep are not similar for the most part. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. That's actually a fair bit I want to unpack there too. Um, yeah, for starters, I kind of want to call back to your, your primary example where you're talking about Winota and you're talking about making land drops. I think that's where I have kind of found myself spinning my wheels a lot in the CDH world is I find that, you know, there are games where making land drops is just easily the most important thing in the game. And there's some games where you can afford to miss one or two and easily win. And I think that directly changes with how much like, you know, the other decks in the pot are looking to slow the game down slash play stacks pieces because like, you know, whatever, if collector oops in play, you'd much rather have a land than a Chrome box, right? But, you know, if you're looking to kill somebody on turn two, you'd much rather have a Chromox than a land. And so I, I kept a lot of hands that more or less just functioned. I mean, this is just a very, you know, traditional, like, base level underrating mulliganing as a tool in CEDH because I didn't understand necessarily where things needed to be. And I also underestimated the consistency of decks when you have access to a commander every single game. Because it's just very different from 60-card formats. The line for how far you can mulligan and how confidently you can mulligan to a better hand with well, X minus 1 cards is a, a lot different. So my assessment of how many lands should be in your deck for different scenarios uh, has kind of waxed and waned a little bit. Sometimes I'll be like, okay, you know, Mikey, you're right. I'm going to cut a bunch of lands. And then sometimes I play a few pods afterwards where it's like the games are a lot slower and I die because I can never miss land drops. So like, okay, well, I didn't like that. But then there's games where it's like, you know, I have a bunch of hands that just have too many lands in them when I'm trying to win on turn two. And I'm like, okay, well, I, I, I have trouble striking the balance. Part of that's because there's no actual established metagame. But part of that's also because, you know, trying to pick my role based on pod is something I was just screwing up epically across pod after pod after pod. And simply just trying to do my deck's primary game plan over and over again when I was underestimating the impact that uh having these these roles and actually accurately determining the roles of the other players because that's an important part of this too is you need to not only figure out your own role but you need to figure out what the role of every other player in the pod is and that gives you direct leverage in politicking you need to because there's times you have to explain to other people what their role is you have to explain to them how the game's going to play out in order for to convince them to interact in spots that they should be interacting in order to not just tap out and die and this stuff matters. This stuff has a direct impact 
on your own win rate. And heck, sometimes you may win the game for somebody else because you're helping them play the game better. But I'm here to tell you, if you can you know, accurately determine how people are going to play their cards, it is going to actually increase your own win rate across time objectively because people aren't making decisions at random. People aren't just like casting a defense grid or whatever and then killing the whole table because nobody can interact. Things like that are things that matter. So that's kind of the first point. The second point I want to make is kind of talking about uh, some actionable differences. I brought up the mono red mirror that kind of comes up in standard, but when you're not talking about mirrors, when you take your who's the beatdown you know, principles and apply them to under other roles, uh, a very common one that came up when I was started playing 60 card formats seriously was I played a lot of the old Jeskai control deck in modern. And when you're playing the Tron matchup, you are the beatdown as the blue white red control deck. Now you're a control deck. So what does being a beatdown even mean? A lot of times that meant uh, you have two mana, you're flashing in a snapcaster for no value, playing a 2-1 and just starting to attack with it. That's a 10 turn clock. Your burn spells that are normally used to like finish off cards or like something else you could try to think of using them for. No, those go face. Like you're now just a really bad burn deck because that's the way you have to you have to approach the matchup. You are not you don't have the inevitability. Tron is going to beat you down as the game goes on. They have things like Ayabugan and Eldrazi Titans. You're not going to be able to Cryptic Command those down. And, you know, you had to kind of just do this embarrassing aggro plan. And oftentimes it would get there. And that's because you do need to be taking the aggressive role. It's a bad matchup for a reason, but you would take the aggressive role. And a good amount of the time you would get there off the back of that plan just because you correctly identified your role. But in CDH... Every deck, for the most part, is a combo deck, right? Like, people complain about it nonstop. Every deck's a Thoracle deck, wham, wham, wham. But, like, it, the reality is, even if you're not a Thoracle deck, every deck is a combo deck in some flavor. Outside of Winota, there's no real aggro. There's no real control. There's no real... Like, people try to make it work, but at the end of the day, it's just usually a bad combo deck instead of, you know, a, a different archetype entirely. Even even things like Shorakai and stuff like that that people try to pitch as stacks, control, whatever. I mean, at the base level, you win the game by various combos. You're more or less a combo deck, but you simply have some slower elements because your combo isn't as efficient. Great. So I want to compare that to the Storm Mirror in Legacy. Uh, particularly Ant, because I don't want Bryant to hear this podcast or whatever and roast me about how test mirrors are just who goes off first. But like... The Ant Mirror, the Ad Nauseam Tendrils deck in Legacy, played a bunch of discard spells, uh, namely things like Cabal Therapy and whatnot. And that matchup is one that you would expect to be extremely fast. Okay, whatever. Whoever has the turn two kill wins. But with all the discard spells, it was actually really slow. Things like Dark Confidant were some of the best possible cards you could have in the mirror because you couldn't take it with Duress. And it would eventually just accrue value over the game because it was a really long, grindy game because you would just discard each other down to being basically handless and have to just natural draw step your way back up into a combo somehow. So that is very much, I think, the better analogy for how CDH games play out, where every deck, you know, is a combo deck. Every deck has some interactive pieces. The way the games play out is, you know, usually win attempts happen multiple times before a win actually happens. And as a result, you have, you know, various players that are going to function as quote unquote the beatdown because they're the ones attempting to combo off. And then you have other players that function as the control role because they're the ones stopping you from comboing in order to eventually line up their combo. Yeah, that's all fair. And I definitely liked your sentiment where 
you're talking about how in CDH, like decks that try to be like control stacks or whatever, at the end of the day, they're still winning through combos. So like everything's a combo deck at the end of the day. It's just how fast can you get to that point? And that's something that a lot of people don't realize. And it's something that we've echoed a lot before where it's just, you need to be able to close out the game. Like, mm-hmm. but while we, we, both of us have um, acknowledged like Charles and his success for making mono white stacks work or win combo stacks work, like that's, he's able to make that work. I don't think many other people are able to. Like you need a way to consistently close out the game and have a strategy that you're trying to enact from turn one. And if it's a little bit slower than some other strategy, that's fine. But you just need a way to actually close out games. And that's something that a lot of people don't realize, I feel, especially when assessing the role at the table. Because someone will be like, I'm on a stack stack. I'm going to stop all the wins. It's like uh, stopping three people versus one in like a 60 card format is very different. And I mean, we you need a lot more resources. Yeah, we talked about this on our last podcast. If Charles were to be somebody that picked up you know, uh, something that I think the generic community agreed to be a better deck, whatever that actually looks like. Um, Who's, you know, who's to say exactly what his success would look like? You know, he's obviously a good player that knows what's going on. You know, is he actually handicapping himself by only playing mono white versus, you know, playing to his strengths or whatever? I I think a lot of times deck specialists and deck specialty is very overrated and good players are going to succeed with good decks you know, even if it's not something they've played a lot traditionally, I, I don't know, but that that's definitely more in the previous podcast kind of vein to talk about. But I, I think you're, I think you're right. For the most part, you need to have a way to close out the game or a plan to close out the game. I referenced things, something like Shorakai that does have some kind of stacks elements. And as a result kind of gets waffled up because people don't know what to call it. But realistically, it's just a slower combo deck that plays a little bit more interaction uh to slow the game down think something like splinter twin instead of like blue red storm right blue red storm the same colors in modern as splinter twin was twin has interactive elements in order to fuel its combo deck uh like elements but i mean more importantly twin was so oppressive because it could completely change what it is in the cyborg games and cut all the combo pieces and become a uh control deck in cyborg games whereas you don't really have cyborg games in cdh so the analogy maybe doesn't hold up as well, but for the most part, it's kind of the same idea where you get a little bit of flexibility in your role. You're able to pivot between control and combo uh, more or less on a whim. And, you know, there's plenty of games that twin one by just pester my beatdowns just because they were like a control deck instead of a, a, a twin deck. So uh, those kind of speak to what control mirrors, I think, actually are in 60 card formats. And a lot of that element of like role assessment ports to cdh because it like i said it's basically all four pods of combo decks so what does that mean for your role and this is like i want to start diving into some specific pods not necessarily too specific i don't want to talk like exact sevens and stuff like that but i want to talk about you know we we used delvers and belchers in our timna dilemma episode i kind of want to get to like that level where we talk about the speed of the different combo decks and what that impact looks like on your uh on your role assessment so you reference blue farm versus something like uh i don't know let's use roger silas those are two decks i've been interacting a lot with recently uh if you are sitting down at a pod with two blue farms and two roger silas decks right what are you thinking um so as the blue farm player i'm thinking these are two decks that are going to be more consistently fast than me and they're going to be able to threaten wins earlier than I can. And I'm not going to be trying to race them at all unless I just have the nuts and it's like a turn one Nas or something ridiculous like that. So that's the big thing that's going to be in my mind. Like, 
I need to be on a little bit more of a defensive slash control role while they're going to be much more on the proactive, trying to go off early wheels, early, like early payoff of any kind, whether it's a wheel, a Nas, a Pita, whatever. In, insert payoff here that you think is valuable. Um, so I definitely would try to play more of like the grindier game there, where I'm more prioritized towards getting out an early crom, since I know if I, the Roger Silas players, both of them are going to be dropping multiple spells a turn no matter what, because they all play the zero drop rocks, they play a lot of rituals, and I need to be ready to stop that turn to win. I don't care if they have it or not. I don't care. You you can throw all the statistics at me that it's not that likely they all have a turn two win. I don't care. I am going to be ready to stop the turn two win, and I just want an early value engine so I can capitalize on them casting multiple spells and be able to stop them. Um, vice versa, on the Roger Silas side of things, it's the complete opposite. It's I know I'm faster. I'm going to make him have it every turn. Because as we've seen with Brian playing the deck, he will make us have it every turn, and when we stop having it, he will win. <laughs> For sure. So does this change the way? Because like I'm thinking like this these these questions I'm asking you, I'm legitimately very curious because I I don't actually know what the approach is because like I do agree that like racing when there's two Roger Silas decks, I think racing is kind of a bad plan. Do you do any kind of pregame conversation with the other Blue Farm player and be like, hey, like you should be keeping an interactive hand. Whatever hand you think is good enough to keep is not that is just fast and just presents a win is not going to outrace these Roger Silas decks. So do you try to convince your opponent to mulligan to a more interactive hand? Like, I, I don't know if that, you know, this is scummy or whatever, but this is something that I've been thinking about a lot recently is kind of pre-game conversations between interactive players, uh, especially with respect to the, the less interactive slash just faster decks and kind of reaching a mutual understanding that you, you should more or less kind of team up and form an alliance and say, hey, we should both keep interactive hands, giving us, you know, being on the same page and giving us basically a, a chance where one of us one of us two is guaranteed to win 50 percent is higher than 25 percent. we should form an alliance and give one of our decks a chance to win instead of just being outraced yeah so i think that raises an interesting question me personally i i don't think it's a scummy thing to do by any means if it's like you sit down it's like okay they are faster than us we need to be ready to stop them you know responsibly as we referenced like in the Timna dilemma like the responsible versus the Belcher decks and such me personally as a player it's not something I enjoy doing but at the same time I'm also not in tournament settings and I think in a tournament setting politics becomes much more relevant especially because it's people you're not used to playing with you don't know their play patterns and I think those types of conversations are extremely valuable and I think that's why we see certain people consistently do well at tournaments like for instance Sick Robot and Spleenface I think they're two prime examples of this where they are very good at the political game um, not to undermine them as players, they are very solid technical players and everything, but they are very good at knowing how to get the table to do certain things, get the table to act a certain way, and it's all through the things that they say and do. And Zane's another good example of this. Like we mentioned in a previous episode how he, when he goes to tournaments, he tries to be like super friendly, super nice, he tries to have these conversations, and I do think in a tournament saying that is extremely valuable. So for me personally, someone who doesn't really have interest in competing in tournaments, I don't engage in those conversations, but I do think your chances of winning go up in these sort of pods if you have those types of talks. For instance, if you're at Punt City and the pod is you're on Blue Farm, someone's on, you know, Sans Black, some Evo, Thrasios Secure, Thrasios Brutes variant, and then there's like an Anala player and a Mono Red player. I think it would be correct for you to talk to the Evo player and say, I get it, I'm on Blue Farm, I'm scary, but like they are faster than me. If we're not ready to stop Anala early, we're going to die, and this Mono Red player might just pull something out of nowhere. 
I think those types of conversations do increase your chances of winning. I don't think it's scummy by any means. It's a four-player game. Politics are a part of it. And those conversations can be very beneficial if you're able to make some sort of alliance. Maybe not, you know, I don't like the idea of making deals, but more of this is the threat. <laughs> you know, try to focus attention on them versus me. And if they believe you or not, I don't know. I don't know exactly how these conversations go down since I've never done it. But talking to people who have tournament experience, these types of things are beneficial in the long run. I mean, I'm sure how much charisma you have, you know, whatever your charisma score is, <laughs> Uh, it has a direct <laughs> impact on on how likely they are to listen to you. But I'm kind of like, I do like that you bring up like casual versus competitive. I think in casual, <laughs> like you said, it's like not maybe as good of an idea, but that might just be wrong. Like I maybe should be doing this in like the pickup games too, just because, you know, if I'm choking to practice for tournaments, this is the way I would do it. But like I, a lot of times just kind of give my friends the benefit of the doubt that they understand how games going to play out. They understand their own role, whereas I'm not going to have that same kind of confidence in a random player but i really like this example we're using where there's two kind of turbo decks and two like maybe a little bit slower decks like the blue farms and roger silas because you know i don't i don't want it to be about personalities i if like if i kind of make this assertion that we should be working together because it's just kind of whatever game th- it's not game theory optimal, but like you know whatever it feels like it's optimal to do so like i don't want it to be like, oh, you just don't like me or like whatever. You're just targeting me because I have this. Well, well, you're just scared because I win too much. Like, I don't want those to be like how the conversation is driven. I want it to be more about how like, you know, how to give yourself an advantage or how to give you and another player an advantage to where you're both more likely to win than two other players. But obviously by doing so, you're increasing your own uh, win percentage. So that's kind of why I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about what those pregame conversations should actually look like. And I do think it should start, if you're going to have them, it should start before hands are even drawn. Like, before hands are even drawn, just be like, hey, like, just you're on the same page. Like, this is where I see the pods at. And this is probably what I'm going to do some of in Pod City. Like, if I run into a pod that's, like you said, whatever, it's a mono red, a mono green, and a blue farm, and a Tim Thrasios or whatever, I'm going to be like, hey, look, like, you know, we are the two blue players at the table. Like, these decks are going to be looking to go fast and, like, protect their own wins with things like blasts and fails and stuff. I think we should keep more interactive hands because we're not as likely to be as fast. Now, I don't know with green and red how likely you are to be fast or not, but maybe it varies by commander, maybe it doesn't. But the point is... Yeah, the the idea is, like, there, yeah, there's two decks that are trying to just jam. Like, yeah. Anala. Like, I always tell you, like, Anala, I'm, I mulligan the hands where I'm jamming turn two, turn three, and when that gets stopped, I'm jamming again turn four. Um just being ready for like those types of scenarios. Otherwise you just get blown yeah, out. And like being like, on the same page, that just keeping a hand that just presents wind attempts over and over again is not, is not going to do it. And this is, this is actually <laughs> cool. There's a conversation I had with Mike, Mike said, playing with powers, check him out. He's great. Where <laughs> we were, at least I'm pretty sure it's Mike. I'm pretty sure it's Mike. Where we were talking about, uh, there was two, a uh, two game series back to back where in the first pod, his, the way his hand texture played out, his hand basically just presented a win attempt like every turn for like three or four turns straight. And he went on to lose this game. I think I actually won that game, but he went on to like lose this game. And like, we were just like, haha, you know, like whatever you were trying to win every game. Like it just kind of was like, whatever, some normal post game conversation. But then the very next game, like I had a hand that did something very similar. Like it didn't have anything else going on except it attempted to win like three or four turns in a row. And so I was like, well, I mean, I can just sit here or I can, you know, start jamming and hoping that one of them sticks. And I don't even think I got to the second win attempt before I lost the game. And mm-hmm. I think that is a big part of where these kinds of thoughts about pregame conversations and mulliganing to specific hand textures comes up a lot because these hands in interactive pods, 
even in like things like Blue Farm where you have interaction of your own, the hands that are just like Jam City, where it's just like jam over and over and over again, never really seem to get there. They always seem to fall short. It's like, what the heck? Like, you know, this is a hand that theoretically should be really good. I mean, I'm literally attempting a win every turn from turn three on, and I just can't seem to buy a game. And I think that's very indicative of misassessing your role. And even if you're playing to your hand texture, you know, even if it's a rough mulligan and stuff, maybe there's a universe where you're supposed to start bluffing. Instead of feeling like you're, you know, just have to jam because that's all your hand does, maybe the the actual answer is you need to start doing a little bit of Hollywooding, a little bit of posturing, and just hold these win attempts to maybe you can attempt two in the same turn. Or, you know, you can try to convince one of the other players that you have something because you're just not doing anything. You're sitting on to hold a hand of seven cards. You know, that would make me a little scared to go off if the blue farm player is just like playing lands and passing or whatever. I'm like, okay, well, I got like two or three pieces I need to beat. So, like, I, I have thought a lot about those particular two games because I think they reveal an interesting truth about CDH where it's like, you know, these hands that just jam all the time, you reference Anala, how you're always going to mulligan into those hands. Well, based on what I just asserted, I think if you're in an interactive pod, you're just going to lose a lot of pods in where there's just like three or four interactive decks. I'm sorry, not three or four, two or three interactive decks. I think it's whatever. It can't be four, but if it's three, I think you're in a lot of trouble. Um, And that actually brings me to the next point. If you are the only blue farm player and there's three Roger Silas decks, what is that conversation supposed to look like? Because you're, I think, first of all, I, I'm willing to go as far as to say I think you're at a disadvantage, right? Like you have three faster decks. Oh, well, absolutely! You, you, you can't are, beat them all, right? You're just in a tough. I don't spot. think you're going. I don't yeah. see a world where Blue Farm wins that unless you somehow get the God Hand. You just are going off before them, and neither of them had interaction. <laughs> right. So how do you give yourself the best chance to win? Do you just ignore all pregame conversations and try to look into something like I don't know a counterbalance or you know some kind of stacks piece that you hope is good enough to matter against everybody and just hope that's good enough or do you try to find somebody that's lower in turn order because we've been talking a lot about decks we haven't really talked about turn order yet because i do want to kind of talk about it separately but uh, for the sake of this conversation do you, do you talk to like the person in fourth and be like hey like you know i'm an interactive deck your deck has interaction in it even though it's a fast deck if you want to mulligan to interact interaction i think that would behoove you because I have to mulligan interaction, like I can say this, even if it's true or not, I can say this and be like, I have to mulligan interaction because I'm not fast enough to beat all the Roger Siles decks. I'm in a tough spot. If you mulligan interaction, you're in a tough spot already because you're going fourth. You're just not very likely to win compared to the two players that are able to go faster than you. I think you sh- if you mulligan interaction, I'm mulligan interaction. We now have the exact same alliance I was referring to before, and we have both increased our, our win rates from what they otherwise would be. Is that is that a fair conversation like it's something that like i think would be true is that something that you would buy is it something you think is valid like in the pod i would be interested in hearing that conversation but it just gets so complicated too because a lot of times when i go in fourth it doesn't really matter what deck i'm on and this is something that zane and i have agreed with a lot if we're going fourth we're just like we're playing greedy as anything we're just banking on other people going off before us, and then we get to sneak in the win. So I think that just depends on your play style and things like that. Because like when I'm in fourth, I already accept that I'm at a disadvantage. I'm just trying to be the major defector. I'm trying to go full on Belcher. It doesn't matter what deck I'm on. It's just like I need to try to do something crazy. And the way that I'm going to do that is if other people are able to like stop each other. And that might not be the best strategy, but that's what I found works the best for me personally. It's just... 
putting forth is a, such a weird thing. And this, once again, is with, like, you know, what is your role in the pod? I think you are correct. Like, the Roger Silas player going in fourth, they need to realize, well, there's two, fa- there's two fast decks going before me. Maybe I need to be more responsible. That might be the more correct line of play. It's, it's really just hard to evaluate because you're at such a disadvantage going forth. So if you're trying to be the responsible player going forth, and it's like, I feel like you lose a majority of those games because you're mowing interaction and then you just don't find gas and then you have to keep surviving three people before you over and over and over again, which is just so difficult. Exactly. I mean, that's just, no matter which way you slice it, whether we're talking about your approach, my approach, both, neither a hybrid, like, you need to catch up, right? Like, going forth... Mm-hmm. Like, you're at such a tempo disadvantage. Like, every player gets a turn before you, gets to play mana before you, gets to accumulate advantage and snowball advantage before you. And we've seen, you know, things like Mystic Remora and Rhystic Study are a big part. Like, a big part of why those cards are so cracked in half is being able to get them ahead of players even getting a first turn is just ridiculous. So, like, objectively, you need to catch up from fourth. And so you need to have a plan to catch up from fourth in your case. It's like, okay, well, my plan to catch up is to just set up to win as fast as I can and hope that, you know, people didn't, you know, stop, stop the wins that would come before mine and stuff like that, which is, a, that's a viable plan. And this does factor into what we're talking about too. Like where there's, I think there's some pods where that just is the answer, but in the specific pod we're talking about where Roger Silas is an interactive deck. Cause like, I think that's a valuable thing if we're talking about, all right, there's, you know, whatever three Godo decks, and blue farm it's like well if you're the goto deck going forth i mean it's not like you can interact that well with the other goto you might have a few pieces or whatever but it's not like you have counter spells and all this stuff going on you kind of just have to do exactly what you just said right like you don't really have the interaction uh pivot available to you so i I do think that's kind of where your plan definitely applies but when you're talking about like some turbo nas decks that have blue cards and like uh available interaction like there's a chance for you to be able to take that as an angle to catch up where you have another player that's like hey i'm keeping interaction you could be like well a way to catch up is to just keep my own interaction develop a little bit slower when you're already behind but if you stop enough wins hope that that puts the other players off balance enough because they had to commit too many resources and just be able to kind of catapult yourself ahead once the dust settles there yeah, it's just, it's such a weird balancing act, like constantly assessing like turn order, what the decks before you're doing, what's the best thing, and also don't mean to backtrack too much. Something that you mentioned is uh, like the decks that try to jam over and over again. You you see that you don't see that working as well as some other strategies. And I think um, something that Sean and Zane specifically are really good at are layering their win cons. I think that's something that you really need to start to consider when you're in seats three and four, because just jamming might not work. But if you're able to present two wins or like a win that gets stopped and it was kind of like a bluff, but it wasn't really a bluff into like another win. Those types of things are just really valuable. Like Zane does this all the time with Team of Pirates where it's like, oh, here's a Worldly Tutor and it's like misstep. And it's like, cool, we're safe. And he's like, well, here's a Neoform. And then joke's on you, I'm just slamming a Nibmizzet. And that was my <laughs> goal because I have a bunch of treasures off Malcolm. I think seeing those types of lines are really valuable. And you see this too with Ashani. Like, I think that's why his Corval deck is so powerful because he's never going off with one reanimate spell. Never. I've never seen him do it once. If he's going off, he has like two reanimate spells or a reanimate spell and a blast or reanimate spell and a veil, like something like that. Like he's layering all this stuff onto each other, which just makes it so like when he's turned where he's going off, it's like if we stopped him, like we needed everyone to tap out. And it's like, wow, well now we're all down to one card in hand and somehow I'm still more scared of Corvold than the person that's untapping after him. Yeah. And 
I think being able to see like those types of lines really gives you the edge when you're going third and fourth and knowing what to mulligan for. Maybe you're not keeping the responsible hand, but you're doing something where you're not winning turn two, but turn four, you, you're presenting two or three win attempts. And I think those are the types of, that's the type of thinking you really need to consider when you're mulliganing and looking at seed order and like what, what decks are at the table or how can you get this edge? Like, yes, going forth, no secret, you're at a disadvantage. How can you spin it to where, okay, I'm at a disadvantage, I can't jam early, but when I'm able to jam, how is it that I can guarantee that I'm going to win or like have a better chance of winning, for lack of a better word? Because obviously no win is ever guaranteed, especially now with channel lands and all this other stuff that stops things like Abolisher and et cetera. Don't need to go down that laundry list. But I think that's the type of thing that you really need to adopt if you want to be successful in tournaments because you, you're not always going to be first. Like Literally, the pairing items make it that you will not always be first. <laughs> yeah, And being able to see these lines where you're able to layer multiple win cons, present wins in unconventional ways, being able to bluff, things along that those lines I think are all super relevant. Like, for instance, thing that you see like me and Eric do a lot, or, or I guess a lot of other people, because I play Grinding Station, so I know a lot of you are not really high on the card, but I, I still <laughs> like it as a breach enabler. Sure. But, you know, there's a bunch of times where people cast top deck tutors, and I have my Grinding Station online. And it puts me in a weird spot. It's like, okay... You know, it's like, as you said, people don't do things at random. Obviously, sometimes people might miss something, but it's like, okay, they put something on top because they just want me to put it in their yard? Like, did they just tutor for LED and they just want it in their yard anyway for their breach turn? And now they don't have to sack their hand to get the mana? And things along those lines. Like, it, it's a constant, like, guessing game, and it's like, okay, like, how are you able to, like, play through all this stuff? And I think bluffing is also a really good way to do it, where, like I said, Zane will drop a worldly tutor, always getting Glittenhorn. He's like, JK, here's the Niv-Mizzet that's in my hand. Or whatever. Nimism might be a bad example because it's uncounterable. But you know what I mean. Maybe he has a birthing pot in hand. Sure. Yeah, no, definitely having like baits and bluffs and stuff like that is is a big part of acting on your role. Actually, not to not to flex too hard, there was a game that happened in Indy where in a single turn cycle, three players resolved ad nauseum and drew whatever, I think it was 20 plus cards each. And I was the single player that did not do so. And I went on to win that game. And it was really interesting because uh, it was a spot where, you know, I was playing Blue Farm. Zach from Playing With Power was also on Blue Farm. Uh, there was an old Stick Fingers deck, and then there was a, I believe it was Malcolm Vile Smasher deck. So, the, obviously, the other three players resolved ad nauseum, and it was going into Zach's turn. And I kind of fired off, like, th there was a top counterbalance combo in play for Zach's. It's like, Okay, he's just like super likely to win, but I had a Ristic study, and this is obviously the secret to you know if it gets back to my turn, I'm just drawing so many cards because people are just casting cards willy nilly with ad nauseum. Um, so I just need to get it back to my turn, and a big part of kind of acting on what you were talking about is I needed to disrupt that top combo, uh, that top counterbalance combo. So I was firing off spells into counterbalance like left and right, just making Zach spend his mana, and there was one turn where he cast a tutor. And I responded with a tutor and he like realized that like with my Rhystic study, whatever I could go get with this Vampiric tutor was going to be a big problem no matter which way he sliced it. He's going to have to let me draw some cards. So he ended up throwing his top on top and shuffling it away be to counter my tutor. And eventually that was, I think, extremely instrumental. We talked about it after the game because Zach's like, I don't like, I feel like I should be able to win there. Like I was untapping with all these ad nauseum cards. I had top counterbalance going into it and like all this stuff. And I think a big part of it was, uh, kind of being able to make that top counterbalance awkward because I think even after the ad nauseum, that was the most important thing he had going on. And as soon as it was disrupted, 
he like I had had the resources to stop him and you know the other players didn't hit enough interaction to stop him and me which was required and I went on to win that game I think that's a big part of it is understanding that you know with the Ristic study in play the onus is somewhat on me to kind of disrupt that top counterbalance and you know obviously it's the responsibility of the whole table to stop Zach from winning but once Zach's been stopped from winning if Zach's committed all of his resources then I'm home free to win. And the important mm-hmm. lesson I want to get out of this is I think there's like a point in each game where you reach where the active player becomes the beatdown and like the player that just took their turn is under the like the primary control role. Everybody has the control, right? Like nobody wants the table to die. But specifically the player that just took their turn, if you didn't win, then your plan is to get another turn. And as a result, you should have played in such a way to allow yourself to get another turn, up to and including holding up more interaction. If you have a win, like if you attempt to win and it gets stopped, and your options are, you know, tap out to make a play that sets you up to win next turn or hold up interaction, I think you're supposed to hold up the interaction because if you are just, you know, leaving yourself dead, but hey, if you get another turn, maybe you win, you're not actually playing to give yourself another turn. Does that make sense? Yeah, I agree with all that. So yeah, I think basically this is where the role begins to change just on whose turn it is. Like you have like this savior role where like the player that just took their turn is kind of there's onus on them to save the table from dying to the next player and so on and so forth until it gets back to you. But in essence, everybody truly takes a control role as soon as there's one player trying to win. So it, it gets really strange, but I think these are the things you need to be thinking about when you're talking about, you know, late stage turns in ZDH. It's like, are you attempting to win? Okay. You're not attempting to win this turn. What are you doing in order to guarantee that you get another turn to, to try to win next turn? You know, what are you, what are you doing in order to further your game plan to where not only can you win, but you actually get the turn that you need to win. And the, the, the first one is the one I think most players think about because it, it lends itself to gold fishing, which is how a lot of people get reps on a deck is they just gold fish it. And as a result, they ingrain these play patterns of gold fishing when they should be thinking more about the specific context, the specific pod, and what are you doing on your turn to get, give yourself another turn. And that's a, a big part of CDH. I think that's a big part of why cards, you know, we talked about Final Fortune is continually overperformed in our playtesting games. That card's a great way to give yourself another turn out of order and is a great plan in its own and so on and so forth. Like there is, it just plays to that plan so well. And it's an underrated, under talked about concept in CDH is understanding that, you know, if you are passing the turn, then you need to be in a position where you can, or you're confident that you're going to get another turn. Yeah, and this is another big thing where we, where you and I are always just like, cast your spells, play your outs, because just because three Adnaz is resolved, you never know, like, people are going to be able to stop each other, like, just because one person taps before you, that doesn't mean that you necessarily win or lose, and I do like that comparison um, you made, where once someone's trying to go off, everyone suddenly becomes the control player. Like, it doesn't matter what deck you're on, like, even if you're on mono green, it's like, endurance answers breach, and, you know, things along those lines. Yeah, what you got? Do you think that... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I think that's an important thing to notice because, like, like you said, like that game, there's three different nozzles that resolved, and sounds like you know it wasn't a clear take care. Like, oh, the first person untapped with all these cards in hand won. And you and I have been in games where people there's been two Peters resolved in one turn cycle, and neither of them won. So this is a lot of weird things that happen that people just need to 
it'll adapt, change their gameplay. I mean, even if your deck is the most proactive deck in the world, it's like mono black crick. I don't care. Have them play it out. You might have something that interrupts them somewhere along the line. Like I don't know. Like part yeah, of the me that does it. They might screw it up. Yeah. Like it's you know you're that not too. dead until you're dead. Yeah, exactly. Until the wind's actually on the stack, I am going to make you play it out unless it's you know breach resolved and there's led brain freeze in the yard already a million other cards yeah. like, okay, yeah. like, no has it, let's... yeah yeah exactly exactly we're on the same page with that but i do think that's a good i just really like that idea like everyone becomes the control player when someone's trying to win like i hate when some people are just like and i do this too sometimes it's like passes in mardu i'm like i don't know man you still have silence you have removal spells like there's a lot of stuff that could happen that answers what's going on here Oh, yeah, for just... politics' sake, I run that in Bergy all the time. I'm model red. I don't have anything. But my deck actually has a fair bit of interaction. I have blasts. I have Tybalt's trickery. I have multiple different uh, redirect effects. I have, like, ricochet traps, SWAT. I have forks, which play a big role. Like, I have all kinds of stuff that can actually interact. It's just, like, you know, behooves you that people underestimate how much you can interact. And that's actually where you steal a lot of wins from Bergy with Bergy is that people just don't think you have interaction. It's like, hey, I'm model red. But I still got a few. I got a few tricks up the sleeve. Hmm. A dual caster, you've gotten me on that multiple times. Oh yeah. I'm just like, yeah. Where I'm just like what? I was like, okay, both blasts are used from Drake. We're good. Here's a Nas, and you're like, um, dual caster, and I'm like, oh. Yikes. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Exactly. I love the I love the somebody casts a Nas, then somebody else counters it, and then you fork the Nas on top of that so that you don't get the two for one. That's that's the that's the play that really does. Oh yeah, I've been me. blown up by your fork so many times too. I'm it's like, so what sick. Is happening. <laughs> I love that deck so much. But no, to your point, I think the biggest discrepancy I have seen in card evaluation among like-minded people, like the, you know, we talked about our playgroup and stuff like that, wheels. Wheels, mm. I think you and I are on the same page that they're very good. And then we have a bunch of players that explain they're really bad. And I, the biggest thing I think that is the difference in the perception has to do with role assessment. So many players assume that if you just wheel, then you're just not getting another turn. You're just going to die. But I think based on the the board texture, like what's going on in the board state, what's going on with, you know, various players, wheels are very often one of the best ways to guarantee yourself you get another turn. Because giving everybody a fresh seven usually means that someone's going to have a piece of interaction. So usually more than one piece of interaction, including yourself. So usually a wheel will resolve. And from my experience, if there's multiple interactive decks, games will play out for many turns after that. And so... If, I mean, if you're in a pod of, like, three Godos or whatever, and you cast a Wheel of Fortune, yeah, you're probably not getting another turn. I wouldn't cast it. But there is a lot of spots where you can cast a Wheel later in the game to disrupt somebody that has, like, whatever, a Mystic Remora, a Krom, multiple yeah, of those I effects. I all the times where it's, like, someone yep. has 15 cards in hand. It's, like, I might have good cards. I might have, like, five cards in hand, one of them being a Wheel, and it's, like, this is really good. Like, this casts Nas, but it's, like, I'm not being a 15 card, so I'll just drop the Wheel on the stack. And then people defend my wheel because we got to reset the person that has 15 plus cards in their head from the Remora, Ristic, Crom, Insert, Draw Engine that they had. Like, it doesn't matter. Exactly. But there's so many times where I just like using it as like the hard reset. Um, I think too, like, um, I think a lot of people's negative feelings towards wheels, it stems from when Whole Breacher got banned. Because when Whole Breacher was legal, you know, every deck was on some sort of wheel hole breaker thing or whatever, like even like mono blue and like Azorius decks, like decks that are a little bit slower. They were still trying to jam this because it was just such an easy combo and hole breacher is just a dumb magic card. Like, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. <laughs> yeah, that, that card one's is cracked. pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> I feel after hole breacher got banned, people then started cutting wheels because they're just like, well, 
my deck doesn't have inherent synergy with it. And I think a lot of them were correct. Like, for instance, I don't think a mono blue deck or an Azorius deck or something that's really trying to be slow should be running wheels. Mm-hmm. Or at least, like, depending on your colors. Like, for instance, an Azorius deck casts a windfall. And there's two Grixis decks at the table and a Junk player. In what world is your hand of six Azorius cards or seven Azorius cards going to be higher card average, or higher card quality on average than those other three decks at the table? And I think people kind of embrace this idea way too hard because to me, when you're playing any four color deck, deals are good. Your average cards are going to be high enough quality to either be on par or better than your opponents. And Grixis, I feel the same way. Your card quality is so obscenely high that any you cast a Wheel of Fortune, any seven cards from your deck should be able to compete with the other people's cards. And if they can't, then maybe you should reevaluate what your deck is doing. And of course, we all have those times where you cast a wheel and you draw five lands and nothing else, or like all lands. Like, that does happen. It's not common, but it happens. But that's not the wheel's fault. Sometimes you get unlucky. At the end of the day, three other people had fresh sevens. So as you said, other people have interaction. Other people might have gotten wins. But for the most part, people should be able to equalize things out. And I just feel people like to harp on these really negative experiences they've had where they cast a wheel, they hit duds, and then the next person won, which does happen. But, you know, as we already talked about, you resolved a PETA on your turn and you didn't even win. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This type of weird stuff happens. It's not that PETA is a terrible card and that you should never play it again and you're an idiot for playing it. It's just sometimes unfortunate things happen, but you need to be able to separate when you just get obscenely unlucky versus like a card being good or not. And I think that's something people really grapple with a lot, especially in CDH, where it's just like, there's a while where no one was casting peers because they're like, deflecting swats a card. I don't want to get my peer swatted. And it's like, all right. Well, yeah, if you you're don't, you don't peer, not play Nas because Force Negation is a card. Like, come on. <laughs> exactly. Or like, you don't play, like, Breach Savines is still amazing. You're not not doing it because someone has Force Negation and they if they exile your Breach or the Savines right now, oh no, it's harder to win. Like, people just try to focus too much on these negative things that happened to them once and rely too much on anecdotal evidence, I feel. And it's just, you need to view cards more objectively, and it's like, is this good in your deck? Yes or no. Not, is this good in the abstract? Because as I said, wheels are bad and, like, mono blue. Like, you know, Cole's playing a zombie and casts a windfall. I'm just laughing in Grixis over here, and you're laughing over in Blue Farm. Like, it's like, cool. <laughs> sure. I'll take seven cards. We'll see what you can do, mono blue. And... Yeah, and I just think that's something that people need to assess, and it goes back into, like, role assessment. Like, if you are a slow control deck and you're just trying to slow things down, don't give people resources. If you're able to win pretty consistently and, like, have a lot of condensed win cons, such as, like, Grixis Core and, you know, all the other four-color piles that are around, those are not bad. I think I think the Roger Silas is actually a great example. It's a deck we keep bringing up, but I like to keep the range of decks we're talking about small to make this as approachable as possible. But Roger Silas plays a lot of wheels. I mean, I think we've been experimenting with like five even. And the, the whole joke there is when you don't have card advantage out of the command zone, wheels is one of the best ways to get that explosion of card advantage that leads to you winning the game. Like wheels can play a different role based on what they're doing in your deck. But in a deck like Blue Farm, they they're very dynamic. They have the ability to undo your mulligans. So you can turn one wheel and just like recover off a, a harsh mulligan. They can disrupt a player, like you said, that has 15 cards in the end when the rest of the table has three. And they can um, even just like catapult you, even if everybody has a fair bit of resources they're working with, they can catapult you into a win uh, if you are just working with a lot of resources like on the table already. Things like Grand Abolisher and or just a, a huge man advantage or something along those lines. Um I think the key to wheels and like, I don't want to belabor all this kind of point too much, but it does play into roles a lot because if you are acting according to your role, 
remember a lot of times if you're playing to wheel pass then you need to be casting this thinking it gives you the best chance to get another turn so and that's true for any time anytime you put a wheel on the stack no matter what you draw off that off that wheel if you put that wheel on the stack and you do not believe that you have a better chance of winning the game with it resolving than not, then you probably shouldn't have put it on the stack. Maybe you're using it as bait, whatever. There's some exceptions. But for the most part, if you're casting this wheel, whatever that looks like, and you think that if this resolves, you're dead, you shouldn't have cast it. Whereas a lot of times, I mean, even if you think the, the chance is only a little bit higher, you should only be casting this wheel if you believe it increases your chances to win the game. So it, if you don't think it's increasing the chance to win the game why are you casting it so like that's oftentimes the way i try to talk about things um i've gotten into fairly long discussions about wheels because i have pretty um i have a lot of opinions on them i've been casting a lot of them in this format because i do think they're very powerful and are are very dynamic and kind of one of the challenge more challenging things to use correctly and as a result it leads to some pretty uh polarizing opinions on them so i like that we were able to touch on that uh and, and how it yeah, i've never seen a more like within our play group as inbred as people like to describe it like wheels have been consistently the most hotly <laughs> discussed topic where people are just so adamant on both sides which i think is kind of interesting that that's the one really decisive hard choice that we're all just like not really seeing eye to eye on for the most part absolutely the last thing i do want to touch on before we wrap this show up is something that i think is not talked about enough. I mean, people say it a lot as just a generic, I don't, I don't want to say platitude, but just as a generic like statement. They just kind of hand wave it away as, yeah, this is really important. But I don't think people hammer home why it's important and they don't talk about how important it truly is enough, is we're going to talk about mulligans and how they apply to your role. Because mulliganing is the most important part, I think, of a CDH game. It's something that generally takes the most time and should take the most time because it oftentimes determines, you know, so much about the texture of a game and gives you the most agency over how you're going to fulfill your role in a pod. So the hand, the cards that you're looking at at the very beginning of the game have the most power over your agency to execute your role in a pod. And so mulliganing is a extremely difficult. And that's a big part of why I wanted to talk about those little example pods. Uh, we didn't really get the chance to talk about the three blue farm, one Raj Silas, which is actually a pod I've played before. Um, that one was really interesting. It played out. I, I know how that one plays out. That one played out that the blue farm players assumed the next blue farm player would be the one to answer the Rog Silas. And the Rog mm -hmm. Silas could steal a few games here and there. But uh, once conversations started happening among the blue farm players, the Rog Silas deck stopped winning as much. So um, from my experience, I think politics and conversation is fairly important. Um, of course, you need to keep some stuff close to the chest, but you do need to make sure that somebody has an answer to the, the turbo deck. But as soon as you do that, um, it usually is one of the blue farm decks winning. And I think that's kind of the result that should happen in equal skill pods uh, as skill ceiling goes higher and higher. But um, the reason I wanted to talk about these sample pods and you know get a little bit more actionable uh, talking points is I think it should, the, the big takeaway from this podcast is you should be thinking more, not just about what your hand does, not just about how quickly your hand wins, but specifically, how does your hand that you're looking at to start the game in CEDH, how does that hand fulfill your role in this pod and lead to a victory through that? 
Yeah, I definitely think that's really important. That's something I was trying to touch on earlier where, like, I see Winota at the pod, and I keep hands that might just look really weird, especially from, like, a Grixis pilot. But you need to be able to play... The, you know what Winota's trying to do. They're going to try to slam stacks pieces. They're trying to get Winota's engine going, turn sideways, drop more stacks pieces into play. You need to be able to beat that. So, you know, Adnaz isn't as good into those pods because it gets really bodied by Rule of Law. It gets really bodied by Thalia effects. However, I see Winota other Staxi decks. My game plan shifts to focus solely on Oracle wins. Um, and then, once again, that, this also applies to Breach. Like, Breach is, like, my bread and butter. Like, anyone who asks me about Magic, it's, like, my favorite card right now at CDH is Breach. I love it. Played in all my decks. All my decks are super graveyard-focused. But once I start seeing stack spots pop up, my mind just goes all on Oracle. I ignore Breach as even a card. Because it's way hard to get that through, because people might be on Rest in Peace. Once again, Thalia is really hard to do. Breach requires multiple spells to be cast. It doesn't beat Deafening Silence. But Oracle Console, Oracle Tampak beat Deafening Silence. It's not hard to play around Thalia effects. If anything, sometimes Thalia effects can help you. It's not hard for people to interact with you, and your combo now is, uh, what would it be? Like four mana instead of three? Like, oh no, god forbid. Oh, these are definitely things that you need to take into account, and like turn order also plays into this, but that's just to me is like an easy bare bones example where most games I tunnel in on breach for the most part. Obviously this changes, but once I start to see stacks of decks at the table, all I care about is Oracle, and that's me. Assume my role as like the beatdown deck, as Drake talked about earlier, like the combo-centric deck, that's the combo that will be, end up with the highest success rate at that table, being able to play through stacks. For sure. Let me ask you a quick question. I, I want to try to, like, articulate my point. So I want to ask you a question. Let's say you're playing a pod that has two Winotas, a Roger yeah. Silas, and you're playing Krom Armix in the fourth seat. Following so far? Ooh. Yes. All right. You open a hand that's a, let's say, second seven. First seven was non-functional. Second seven... The cards are Underworld Breach, Lion's Eye Diamond, Brain Freeze, Four Lands. Are you keeping that? The land... Sorry, what was the hand again? So LED Breach... It's the combo. It's Breach, okay. LED, Brain Freeze, Four Lands. Four Lands. And I'm going last. Um, I don't think I keep that because, for one, it's pretty hard to get off all that since there's no graveyard to do like the Breach Brain Freeze things. And I also think it's magical Christmas land, assuming that by the time I'm ready to go off, which with that hand would probably be like turn three-ish, that there's no stacks piece from Winona that's stopping me. Yeah, I think, I, I, that's I think you can go off on risky. turn two, right? Because you can, you go land, land, put the breach on the stack, crack LED for trip blue, cast the brain freeze immediately, right? Um, so oh, yeah. You should that's be able fair. to combo immediately. But it's a turn two combo, going forth, nothing else uses the graveyard. Is that good enough going forth? Because you mentioned how you like to all in going forth. So I kind of want to articulate, you know, this is something that you've articulated in this podcast that plays to that plan. I mean, this should be a turn two win. Can you keep it? That one I wouldn't keep. I would definitely keep going just because, like I said, so many things from the Winota player stop you, or Winota players, I should say. And then it's also just, like, super all in because if there's an answer for, like, the LED or, like, after you crack it, someone can, like, answer your breach or something, you're just kind of in the water. And I think that's a little bit too risky. I want something a little bit that's a little bit more reliable. I'm inclined to agree with you, especially after talking through this podcast. I I think there's a world in which a different Drake would have kept that. A different Drake would have looked at a turn two win and said, "Look, I I don't know. I'm on a second seven. I don't know if a six is going to get better than this. Like I don't know what I'm looking for, but not a lot of hands are better than a turn two win guaranteed. Well, more or less guaranteed. I mean, I can't. I think it is guaranteed if you do the math. Like you should be able to go through your whole deck." Um, because the brain freezes for like 
nine or whatever, right? Which is LED freeze again. Yeah. So you could just like, yeah. you should be, it should be a guaranteed win. And like, I don't know, I'm already unfavored in the pod. I would get this very defeatist mentality and just keep the hand. And I think now that's a big growth point for me is there was a pass trick that would have kept that hand. I think current Drake would mulligan that hand. And I think that's a huge growth point. So I think that articulates kind of a in practice, you know, maybe a little bit of extreme of an example, but I don't even think that's true either. I mean, I think it's a somewhat realistic example of that exact principle uh, in, in, in action. And I think that's something that is really cool to see. It's really cool to see how these principles apply differently to CDH. And I, I really liked having this conversation with you because like I said, this is one of the stri- most striking things about watching you play when I first started playing pods with you is you were playing Krom Armix and it just seemed like no matter what, you just had the right cards for the pod. Like if it was a pod that was like really, really like going to look like it was going to get bogged down, but people were just like kind of putting random stuff in play. You just had like a turn two or three nods. And then there were some hands where it's like, okay, well, I'm going to try to go really fast and do all this stuff. You would just have interaction, have all the like card advantage and set up and just play a longer game than end up winning a really long game. And so it was just like a very, it was like a point of curiosity for me. And I would even go so far as to say frustration at some points. It's like, how does Mikey just like always able to pivot <laughs> into the exact role he needs to? And I think that was a big example of you just executing on your role assessment better than like even I understood at the time. And uh, one of the biggest deltas between your play skill and my play skill when I first started playing pods with you. Yeah, I definitely think that was a big thing that contributed to or contributes to my success in general in this format and going to your point where you're like an old drake would have kept that hand that's kind of what i was getting at where a lot of people look at their hands and it's like objectively this is a good seven like these are powerful cards they do the thing it gets a win turn two but when you start to evaluate what decks are at the table and everything like i said these cards that are objectively good cards in the format they don't work and your game plan just will not executed or be you will not be able to execute this game plan given the circumstances of the pot I think that's something that a lot of people just need to realize, and I think you've kind of realized it now, but definitely there was a while where you're just like, I kept a hand that was a turn two Rissic study. How is that too slow? And it's like, well, Drake, there's a Corvo player and an all player in the pod. Like, you thought you were getting a turn two? That's cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that's it's something that's like, okay, well, like, Drake would just, like, a pass Drake would scoff at you. Like, I think I'm getting a turn two. How am I winning any game where I'm not getting a turn two or whatever? But, like, you know, it's it. there is actionable things that you could have done differently. So many players look at games, and this is where, I, you know, I could go off the rails on this, where players get this, like, I don't even know if it's tunnel visioned. It's, it's more of like an ostrich effect where they're like, wow, I mean, if you just have everything, there's nothing I can do. Or if this is how, the, like, these are the cards that were in your hand, there's no way I could win. And that's just almost never true. Like, there is a time where you will reach a point where you cannot beat a certain sequence of cards from a player, but those are usually a lot further along than people think, and people use these kinds of narratives to cover up their own mistakes. And it happens a lot with role assessment, too. One, In fact, I think it happens the most often with role assessment, where somebody screws up their role, they tap out, they die with some counter magic in their hand, and they make some excuse like, well, I had to play this. Or else I don't think I can win. You know, how am I going to be able to keep up or win later on? Like, they just want to put some cards in play. And, you know, that maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. I think most of the time it's, it's not because you, you just didn't understand your role. And you didn't have a vision for how the game would play out and lead to you winning the game. Most common question I ask myself when I'm in, in a spot where I don't know what to do. I ask it out loud a lot of the time, much to some people's dismay. I'll be like, what does winning this game look like? 
And that is the question that is answered by figuring out what your role is in that game. What, whatever winning the game looks like, does it look like you winning really fast? Does it look like you playing a longer game, answering X, Y, and Z, and then eventually winning? Like You have to piece together the puzzle in advance of what winning the game looks like. You don't really oops into wins very often in high-skill CDH pods. You have to have a vision for what it looks like and execute on that. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's about all I have to say on, on role assessment. Any final thoughts, opinions, and words you want to say on... Uh, who's the beatdown in CDH? Uh, just mulligan more and try to make, like just look at what's at the table and assess like what other people are going to try to do. Like it's not an easy skill to have, and this is not really this isn't something that I picked up instantly. Like, I've been playing CDH now for like five years, and now I think I'm finally starting to scratch the surface and get a better understanding of it. But in general, don't go into a pods uh, thinking like, oh, I goldfish a turn two win every time because when you start going against better players and as tournaments start to come up. That's just not going to work out. You need to have a cohesive game plan, as Drake mentioned, starting from your mulligan. Mulligans are extremely important, and you need to realize when you're able to go fast, when you're able to go slow, when you need to control the table, and how your how your deck and your different win cons interact with what's at the table. And it's not easy, but it's something that everyone can start practicing more. And it doesn't matter if you're used to seeing three Grixis in the pod or you're used to seeing three stacks in the pod, whatever it may be. That's just part of the skill is like realizing where your role is and where like where your role should align and how you should play differently. Like since I played in uh, my Muscle Josh's server a few months ago, where they all play stacks and people like to say I'm an inbred Grixis player and I only play with other Grixis players. I went into this meta where there was consistently three stacks players in the pod and I went seven and one that day. Cool. It's literally just knowing how to play against it, knowing how like and once again I focused a lot a lot on oracle wins and things like that and just knowing how you can subvert what other people are trying to do and push yourself ahead and it's something that you you will learn best by just jamming more games and really talking about like where did this go wrong this hand's crazy it's a turn one fish and remora or remora and rhystic study how did i lose and being able to actually take a step back and realize it's not the card's fault sometimes that you just made bad decisions mm-hmm. you have you have a lot more agency over the results of a game than you think sometimes you do just die but it's not as often as you think. And even those times where you do just die, there are some things going all the way back to mulligans that you could have changed. Don't just think about the final turn cycle. Think about what could have happened starting at the very beginning of the game that could have led to a different outcome. With that, Absolutely. I think that's all I got to say. Mikey, if people want to find you, they want to tell you that their meta of three stacks is one that you simply could not overcome. And they want to scream at you on <laughs> various platforms about that. Where can they do that? They can find me um, at the Miscast or on Twitter or the Miscast Twitter at the Miscast MTG, as well as my personal Twitter at Mikey Hollihan. And as always, you can hit up Hal at Hellenium Gaming. He's my secretary. He's been doing a great job recently. <laughs> Very proud of him. He's been relaying a lot of information, a lot of random questions, and it's been great. I, I'm shocked at how long that bit has gone. I'm not going to lie to you. The secretary. Oh, it's, it's, I, I he's only one of those. He's only getting better at his job too. It's fantastic. Yeah, you're, you're teaching him. You're teaching him wonderful wonderful <laughs> if you want to find me you can of course find me at viral drake that's viral i'm sorry at viral underscore drake on twitter i'm viral drake with no underscore on moxfield if you want to check out some of the decks i'm working on i've got actually gotten a few more followers in there recently i don't know you know what i can do with that platform more or less yet but i think it's a great way for people to kind of see and engage with the decks i'm actively working on so definitely check that out you can of course reach both mikey and i at the miscast mtg on twitter um and you know you can find us in various discords and stuff like that mikey i know has been working in the eminence discord a ton 
doing a ton of work for Punt City. Going to be a great event if you get a chance to check that out. We've showed that quite a bit on the podcast. Um, of course, both of us will be there. So if you're there, check us out. You know, we have some tokens now. You can come find find us, get some of those. Maybe we'll uh, Mikey will sign one. If we can convince him to. But uh, either way, I get one signed by the secretary huh? too. Yeah, you can get yeah, one signed yeah. by Hal the secretary. Yeah, we we need to get the trifecta. Get like a little uh, little picture of Hal the secretary, <laughs> like a little sticker or something. To put on the tip, uh, tokens, that'll be really fun. Anyways, thank you all for listening, and we'll check y'all out 